After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, guys, it's that there's always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly on to you. I haven't skipped a beat using Mint Mobile services. I have a great service even when I'm traveling for over less than 70% of what I was paying before. Listen to Uncle Chael and say bye-bye to your overpriced wireless plans, jaw-dropping monthly bills and unexpected overages. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans starting at 15 bucks a month. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash chael. That's mintmobile.com slash chael. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash chael. $45 upfront payment required. That's equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Guys, I'm really into things that add more convenience to my life. It's even better when it also comes with safety in a high-quality package. I'm talking about my Eufy Video Lock. I'm still loving this thing. I love this thing so much that I'd like to invest in the company. I am so impressed with this product that I'm willing to back it. And if anyone out there knows how I can do it, please reach out. You gotta check it out for yourself. I'll probably do a quick social post, but for now, just search UV Video Lock. Do it online. It's a three-in-one smart lock, 2K camera with an audio and doorbell. It's easy to install. It has fingerprint recognition, so I don't even have to remember a code. I can control it all in an app, which again, the convenience is such a big plus for me. We are always on the go, and being able to monitor our home on the road is such a nice option. Not only that, I don't have to rush to the door if the doorbell rings. I can either open the door or ignore whoever's at the door by vetting them through the app. There is no monthly fees for security video storage. The battery is rechargeable, and each charge lasts about four months. This Eufy Lock is fantastic, and I highly recommend it. Search Eufy Video Lock online. That's Eufy, E-U-F-Y Video Lock, or visit eufyofficial.com backslash video lock to see how you can gain complete control of your front door. I'm kind of looking around, I'm going, what is wrong with you? Where did this come from, for one? But you don't, you don't have to tell me. It's here. It's, it's arrived. It's here. Fine. Fine. Keep the same energy if you see me. Is there a gangster in the world that you have to worry about keeping the same energy when he sees you?
What's happening, guys? Happy Friday, live from New York. I am staring at Madison Square Garden right now. There's something. There's an energy about that. You're going to feel that energy, and I'm going to pass it to you guys. Thank you for joining another episode of You're Welcome. Should we get that out of the way? Guys, coming up on today's show, I'm going to give you my official predictions. And I'm going to tell you something very special that's going on in this event scheduled for Madison Square Garden on Saturday. But before we get there, guys, I want to address a few elephants in the room. So I went on Ariel's program last week, and I never spoke about this because it didn't go well, and Ariel's my friend. I mean, you you do have to understand that. Like, if friends fight, if you're truly friends, you get over the fight. And Ariel and I were having a debate. It was a very heated debate. And within the debate, I made two points, and I only made two points. We were discussing Francis versus Fury. There's two ways to observe what you saw. The first was from a competitive standpoint. And from a competitive standpoint, this greatly exceeded all expectations. Then you have the financial standpoint. From a financial standpoint, it met expectations. It was designed to lose upwards of $100 million, and it did. Those were my only two points. I am factually correct on both. Okay. But we end up in this argument. And when we come out of the argument, it is for you to decide who won. And I will tell you, from my own supporters, my own Twitter supporters, it was 50-50. And I'll tell you one thing. I was screaming at Ariel. And I even told him, Errol, I will, I would strangle you. And when you start yelling in an argument, your words aren't what the victory or the defeat of the argument will be based on. It will be based on you losing control. Who lost control? Who cried? Who screamed? Who used profanity? Right? It's one of those things. But I'll share with you, and let's back up. I do opinions. I don't break news. I do opinions. And I will put nothing in front of entertainment. I I won't put the enunciation of the person's name in front of entertainment. That's well known. That's who I am. That's what I do. I'm very consistent with it. Ariel is a journalist. And a journalist, you can just raise your hand and say you're a journalist right? I'm a journalist. But he really is. He won the award 13 times. The award for 2023 will be given out in one month. I suspect he will win it for his 14th time. But he also went to college and got a degree in journalism. It's not just something he went into or a column he wanted to be in, so he raised his hand and put him there. I share that with you because when I work with Ariel, he is accurate. If he's not accurate, He will disclose that up front as a way of remaining accurate. He will talk about rumors. He will tell you, but he'll use that word. If he tells you something, this is what it is. He's reporting something. He's right. And on the very few instances where he's not right, he thought he was right. He vetted it. He had very good sources. 
I mean, but this is the Earl I know. So one of the things that threw me off, in the opening line, Ariel said it was reported that Francis made between 10 and $20 million. $10 million for the gig, but then with back-end money from pay-per-view sales, upwards of another 10. And I said, Ariel, that has not been reported. And then I challenged him. And Ariel has the ability within his show to do a Google search and then throw it up on the screen. He has that ability. So I challenged him to do it. And I and I even said to him, Ariel, if this was posted by somebody's Twitter account, some random person of the 2 billion people that have access to Twitter, if they posted it on Twitter, I will swallow my words. If this is on a chat room, on a thread, on the underground forum, like if this has been stated anywhere, that the internet can find, I will concede defeat, which isn't what most people would do. They, they would go, oh, check the source. Oh, who's that? Oh, that's not reliable. Like, right, when they get the answers, they don't want. My statement was very simple and very broad. That has not been reported. Go online right now and pull that up. And I was stunned when he said it because it's just not how he does things. So he then comes and says, yes, it was reported. I said, I said prove it. Go find it. Show it. Show it to me right now. And he says, it was reported by me. I said it. It's like, oh, wow. Now we're really, now now you've really proven my point. My entire point of it hasn't been reported is that you misspoke. And if you didn't misspeak, then you misled, which means you misreported. It's just not something he would do. And then he says that he reported it. And I was trying to explain to him what the pay-per-view did. And the pay-per-view is, is, greatly misunderstood even by you, the viewer, now. For example, when Arrow was talking about this, this, it did a million views. Whatever it would have to do to bring in another $10 million in back-end money, like whatever it would have to do. I'm sharing with him, Ariel, I live in this space. I've been talking about this fight for a period of time. I planned to watch the fight. I would have missed it had it not been for a random conversation I happen to be having with Kevin Ioli. Kevin, we're going back and forth. He tell, hey, I got to go. Good talking, chill. I got to go. Fight's about to start. Well, it was 11 a.m. where I was at. What do you mean the fight's about to start? He says, yeah, the pay-per-view goes live at 2 o'clock Eastern. And it, that's a very relevant fact. Like, before you get the numbers, before you get the inside scoop, you have to know right out of the gate that it wasn't position to do well. And that's very important that you understand if you're trying to heap praise onto Francis, and I was. I was there to celebrate what Francis had done and also try to break down, how how do you do it? How did a guy with no experience just beat up the greatest to have ever done it? The greatest heavyweight ever. If Ali was here, he would tell you Fury's the greatest ever. It's a size issue. I mean, just purely on the size of the way that big man moves. Mike Tyson, George Foreman, these guys would concede and go, no, it's Tyson Fury. Klitschko himself, who lost to Tyson Fury, would tell you it's Tyson Fury. Anthony Joshua would not concede to you it's Tyson Fury, but in back rooms will not sign a contract to fight him. Right? I mean, it's a really special thing. But a reasonable person would know that it didn't do well because there was no anticipation going into it. There was no expectation going into it 
that it was going to be anything but a squash match. Not to mention it came with the highest price tag I've ever paid for. I've, I've never been asked to pay $80 for any pay-per-view. And then you have the off time, which is 11 in the morning where I at. Okay. So you just, you just know, right? You, you just know. And it was very weird that he, he took this position. Very strange. And, and when he was taking it, he was doing it with an overlay of sticking this up Dana's ass. So when I came in with correct information, which is it was an awesome competitive treat, right? When you get something you are not expecting, when you think you're partying with $80 and the walkouts are going to be longer than the match itself, which was a problem that followed Mike Tyson around. Mike Tyson was having a hard time selling pay-per-views because he was getting rid of everybody in the very first round. And it was to the point that Don King, in cooperation with DirecTV, came out and told the world, if this fight doesn't go beyond the first round, we will refund half of your money. They had to do that to bring people in. Quite literally, the walkouts and the introductions were meaningfully longer than the fight. And I, I share all of this with you because the idea that somehow this reflected poorly on Dana, that idea doesn't come from a stance of me looking to defend Dana. I'm speaking within reality. Dana White did not promote this fight. Dana White didn't even watch the fight. Somebody lost upwards of $100 million. That somebody was not Dana. Dana was able to look at it, see it for what it was, and pass because he's running a business. Now, all of those things are needed to then compliment Francis and what he overcame and all of the doubt and all, all of the scrutiny and insecurities. Whatever it was that Francis was feeling going into that, knowing that an entire community can't just be wrong in believing he's a lamb going into slaughter, but he still overcame and he still found a way. And it's a very meaningful part of Francis's entire story. And no matter where you stood as a fan or anti-Francis, you will now respect Francis. The end. So I didn't understand why the make-believe 10 million back-end money bonus because pay-per-views did so well. I, I just don't know where that came from. So it engages a fight going back and forth with us. And where things really got off course. And, and you got to understand, there's enough blame to go around. Me shouting at Ariel, me screaming. I finally had to go. And I got to tell you, when people, when somebody hangs up on you, you're on a phone call and it's here and you, somebody hangs up, that is a real baby move. But I was to the point, my, what do you call it? Horse, lar laryngitis. Like my throat still has not, I couldn't talk anymore. I got to go. I even said it to her. I go, hey, I look at people that hang up as that's a, that's a real rat move. I got to go. So I, I don't know if it is a full hang up when you're saying I have to, if you, if you alert the guy, that just sounds like maybe more of a goodbye, but I would still maintain that if a conversation gets off course, you have to trace it back to when did it start? 
if you have a conversation and both are, are saying, you're lying, you're lying, you're lying, it's it's one of these really bizarre things. And that was the thing that Errol had done to me. And that was very unfair. I was his guest, for one. And two, there was nothing I lied about. As a matter of fact, I corrected it and made it right. Which 24 hours later, Dave Meltzer confirmed that I was right. But when Ariel is calling me a liar, the whole thing started because he lied, right? You got to trace it back. You have to trace it back to who started this. It's a very, it's a very important part. It was his opening line. His opening line to me was a lie. And there's a very big difference in lying and being wrong. You can give information that is not accurate information. If you believe it to be true or you something slipped your memory or you were never told in the first place, you might say something that is wrong. So Ariel came at me very hard. I told him something. I said, you never said that. And he he did. He said, I, I said it two months ago on this show. Well, between he and I, who is more likely to know what he might have said on a show that I don't watch or listen to? The person that said it or a person that, that, that never watched it in the first place. But he calls me a liar for that. Calls me a liar. And then he gives me what's called a receipt. He has his producer goes back and finds the clip where he did in fact say it. But you got to understand that would make me wrong as opposed to lying. Lying is what got us on the wrong track in the first place where you lied about the success of the pay-per-view. So I don't really know that we can actually be mad at each other. You got to understand what we're debating is what somebody else did. We aren't debating what I did to Ariel or what Ariel did to me. Like there's not really a way to remain angry at each other and if you did, that you were never friends. And Errol is my friend. But I never spoke about it. And I've never spoke about this because I thought it was an unfortunate moment. A real, I really was unpleased with the fact that this happened. There was a, a point in there where he challenged me. There was a point in there where he said words that are extremely provocative, particularly in our culture. Have some balls, say it to my face is something he said to me. That might not sound provocative to you. I, I don't know. Perhaps it does. It might not. In, in our culture, those are fighting words. Have some balls, say it to my face. Those are fighting words. And not to mention, I'm the one that just said it to you. I'm as close to your face as I can get, which happens to be this camera. I just said it to you. So when the whole thing ends, I've, I've never spoke to you guys about it, right? I could have come right out. I'm sitting in this very studio when I did Errol's show. I could have ended Errol's show and came and spoke to you guys directly and made a piece that would have done exorbitant numbers. But I didn't like that it happened. I didn't know what was going on emotionally or in his personal life. I felt like that wasn't him. And people are allowed to have a bad moment. So I never spoke about it. I assumed when I was doing that, that he also would not speak about it, that he would not go on and on and capitalize. I mean, at the end of the day, I was a guest. I gave up my time. He was paid to be there. There's a way he has to treat me. I'm his guest. That isn't what happened, though. He made numerous pieces about it. And I don't know that that is bad. It won't change the fact that I love Ariel. And it won't change the fact that if there's something going on with him personally as his friend, I will be there for him. But it did surprise me 
that the ugliest moment that we have had together in the 20 years that we've had a relationship, it did surprise me that he continued to talk about it publicly. And within that, I have never heard an apology. I had two points. The competitiveness of that match exceeded expectations. The financial element to that match met expectations, which were to go backwards. Both of those are true. I was 27 years old and I'm in Russia working for an organization called Bodog. Bodog Fight. And I have very great memories in this sport, things that I really cherish. I'm so, so grateful that have happened. But some really great memories and some great times were with Bodog. And it was one of those situations where they were so good to us that it wasn't sustainable. I mean, they treated us so well, but one of the things that Bodog did is they took us to Russia for an event. And great big, huge arena, probably seats about 20,000 people. They rent the whole thing out. And then there's a little back room, almost like a large conference room. And that's where we're going to hold the fights at. Which is just a fascinating concept. Like, I don't know why we went all the way to Russia and had this huge arena to go and do this in, in a makeshift studio. I don't fully understand that, but Bodog got a television deal. And it wasn't with a massive network, but they had a distribution partner. So it was done in the vein of The Ultimate Fighter, right? The, the Ultimate Fighter is one of the only things in all of sport that doesn't go live. There's two things that you have to see live if you want good numbers, the news and sport. So the Ultimate Fighter comes along and they do it from a reality show concept. Like there was nothing about the Ultimate Fighter that has ever been a reality show. The reality is it's a show, but the reality is the Super Bowl is also a show. However, the concept that we're going to do something and we're going to do it as a team and we're going to put a moratorium on any information, any results, any matches, any drama, everything. We all go in this together with our lips sealed, under penalty, done through a signed contract. It, I mean, it was one of the riskiest moves that Dana has ever done. And I don't think anybody has ever looked at it in that regard. I mean, even the Dana White Contender Series, it's live. Like for Dana, at that point in the company, which was hemorrhaging money and on the verge of collapse, to then believe that he could get a group of the most untrustable people there are, fighters, to keep their mouth shut, that is a bet that is as risky as anything that Dana's ever done. But I, I share that example because that's how Bodog was doing. We go, we go to Russia and we go to this little room and it's four days of fighting. Like everybody comes out there and there, there's going to be like, like 45 matches. But those 45 matches are going to take uh, over the course of four days. So we all go to this arena and then we all go the next day and we all go back to the arena and we keep on doing this. They, they get a whole package for a whole 12 week season of fights and we fly home. And when I was there, there was a UFC vet named Steve Berger. 
complete stud. But from a marketing standpoint, if you're fighting on a smaller show and they can have UFC vet next to your name, that show's going to do really well. And you're going to be looked at, you're going to be treated differently, you're, you're automatically going to be a leader. And this is what Steve was. Great guy. He's in the ring. And out of nowhere comes a 21-year-old, skinny kid, tight hairdo, average build, tattoo on his chest. And when he gets to the ring, before he ever gets in the ring, he begins yelling at Steve Berger. He begins telling him, wait right there, Steve. I've been looking for you. You Stay right there, Steve. You stay right where you are. This is a 21-year-old kid. He's talking to a, a, a natural leader in this environment. He's talking to a UFC vet that way. And the young man is named George Masvidal. And I turned to Matt Lynn. I'm sitting with Matt. I turned to Matt Lynn. I said, hey, we got to get this guy against Nick Diaz. I mean, that was just a comment I made before I'd ever met George, but I'm just observing him. Then as the fight goes on, you got to understand, this is a small room. There is no audience. There is just the guys that are assigned to this event to fight and their cornermen. And not all of them showed up to every single fight. It was one of these things. You're focused. You're working on something. You're back in the room. I was there purely as a coach. I wasn't fighting on that card. So I'm taking in the whole show. And when the match begins, George Masvidal is on top of Berger and stops to pop up and have a conversation with the ring girl. And he asked her, what are you doing later? I'll get your number after this match. And then goes back to ground and pound. And he did this multiple times. I mean, you, from, from a respect standpoint, a lot of people are going to like that. From an entertainment standpoint, I'm giddy. I, I've never seen anything like this. Like this, this guy is making this so fun and so interesting. And there isn't three other matches of that entire week that I could tell you about. So I watched 45 matches. That's the one that stands out, George Masvidal. I have told that story about George Masvidal. In fact, George gets ready to fight Nate Diaz. And I told that story on SportsCenter. Where I, when the first time I saw George, I turned him at Lillian. I said, you got to get him in there with Nick Diaz. That's going to do huge. Well, it wasn't Nick. It was little brother Nate. But I was right on the huge part. The leader of the free world is in the front row. The leader of Hollywood, known as The Rock, is going to put the belt on him. Madison Square Garden completely sold out, multi-million dollar gate. It's incredible. A title was created, the BMF. I mean, I really called this one, right? I really called this one from the beginning, even if the Diaz boys make a switch. George comes up after that fight. He comes up to the booth, we're doing ESPN, he comes up and we interview him. And when he came up, you gotta understand, I'm very close with Nate Diaz, very close. But I still acknowledge that a young man named George Masvidal, who used to have to fight in back row rooms in Russia on a network that to this day, I cannot produce the name of for you. It was called like Ion or something along these lines just headlined Madison Square Garden. Oh, by the way, Hands of Stone, Roberto Duran was in his corner. Somebody I have admired since I was a little boy. Somebody that made me look at fighting in the very first place. The true four horsemen. Hagler, Leonard, 
Duran, Hearns. One of those four was in this guy's corner. This young boy with a dream fighting in the back rooms is now on the set of ESPN to do a live show after having the belt put on him by the biggest star in Hollywood, watched by the leader of the free world. Like, it wouldn't matter how close I am with Nate. Congratulations, George, period. And he came up and he was so nice. And he starts telling me about Duran and my father-in-law, Steve, is there. And I said, hey, we, I, you know, I know you're busy. And it's like three in the morning at this point. Hey, I know you're busy. Can, can I please introduce you? He refused to leave. As tired as he was, he refused to leave until he got to meet my father-in-law and he treated him great. So you fast forward through George Monsvidal, who becomes the second biggest star in all of MMA. That is a phrase that you will hear all over the place, but it was coined by me. He was the second biggest star in all of MMA, only to Connor, and that gap was closing. All of a sudden, he's fighting for world championships. He got a piece of the pay-per-view, and, and Masvidal went on this media tour. He did everything the UFC had, but then he had his own team. Abe Kawan Company sets up his own tour. He works through day and night to bring attention to this, and this is the one where he's going to put some real money away. Goes out there and he competes a little better than a guy should with the greatest pound-for-pound fighter in the world in Kamara Usman when you're George Masvidal and you found out about the fight with just enough time to get the weight off and you barely got the weight off, right? I mean, the actual competition would be viewed secondary and he went 25 minutes and he won a round. And... Athletes had not won a round against Usman for a meaningful period of time, but I'm just saying, this kicks him off. And when he was looking to do those media tours, I'm one of the people that he reached out to. I said, of course, and I wasn't in studio. I mean, it was some crazy hour that he had to do this. So I bring the team and I go to the studio, all for him because he asked me to do it, right? This, this is a, a friend of mine. So nowhere in my life have I ever spoken negative about George Moswell. Not once, not ever. Not when he had the thing going with Nate. Not when he had the beef going with Colby. But that also includes privately. I have never had a private conversation about George Masvidal where I did not speak glowingly. So George Masvidal goes on Ariel's show yesterday. And he says terrible things about me. He he talked about I used to rob banks. He talks about uh, I did steroids. Talks about I I did steroids and still didn't win a championship. Now, I'm not saying that George lied about me. I did all of those things. But you would understand, it's the truth that hurts, right? You would deal with that from your detractors. You would deal with that from what's called your haters. You would not deal with that from your friend who you've known for 17 years. So this very much catches me off guard. Now. George then comes from the stand. Now, I have to respond to this. I don't want to respond. This this catches me out of left field. But, I mean, he says, come see me. You you want your ass whooped? Come see me. Called me a a little bitch. And I'm I'm very confused, but it's not as though I'm going to let that ride. So I fire back some corny stuff at Masvidal, right? Like, oh, you say you want to fight. Let me get this clear, though. Are you going to be kicking me? 
with the uh, leg that has the ankle monitor? Or, hey, in between, are, are prison officials going to give you a juice box instead of water? Like, silly. G-rated silly stuff. Which, by the way, I didn't do to him what he did to me, which is I didn't tell the truth. He doesn't have an ankle monitor on. He's not in prison. There's not a juice box. Right? This, this is playful. So I'm giving him his receipt. I got to pay him back. Right? I can't let that ride. We're square. You went first, you knew you were going to get a response, and you did, and we're done. Well, not so fast. He then came at me on Twitter, either called me a bitch or he called me a juice head, and then says to me, keep that same energy when you see me in person. Does he think he's talking to somebody else? Is there anything about my history that you think if you do that in a different environment other than the cage, that I'm the guy that's going to just let that go? Did he literally, does he think he's talking to somebody else? This was a very crazy statement. Not to mention, hey, George, I've known you 17 years. If I do see you out of this, I'm not going to come up and look for trouble. But if you come up to me, I'm not that guy. There's nothing about what you know about me that would make you think that I'm that guy. So it was just a very bizarre experience for me to have. And it was even more bizarre that he told me to keep that same energy. The reason that's bizarre is George Masvidal made a fortune, but got his head caved in by Kamar Usman. Kamar Usman coined the phrase into our industry, keep that same energy. He coined the phrase during a press conference opposite Ben Askren. And Ben was calling him Marty from Nebraska. And he said, what? That's how I've known him. We're at the Olympic Training Center. He was Marty from Nebraska. That's all true. But things have changed, and Kamar Usman is now the champion of the world and doesn't like being teased in public. Fair enough. But he coined the phrase. He coined the very phrase that George Masvidal took to the internet to say to me. And I'm kind of looking around. I'm going, what is wrong with you? Where did this come from, for one? But you don't you don't have to tell me. It's here. It's it's arrived. It's here. Fine. Fine. Keep the same energy if you see me. Is there a gangster in the world that you have to worry about keeping the same energy when he sees you? Mark your calendars, because November 11th is going to be huge. Yuri Prohaska versus Alex Piera. They're going to face off during the UFC 295 pay-per-view, but only one fighter will leave with the belt. Secure your victory with unbeatable offers by going to DraftKings Sportsbook. New customers, strike now to get $200 instantly in bonus bets when you bet $5. Alex Vieira is the favorite in this fight. Now, I got to tell you, that comes as a slight surprise to me considering He's only fought in this weight class one time. Now, DraftKings has him as a slight favorite. 
We're talking about a minus 105, and you got Yuri Prohasko, former champion who never lost a belt, at least not from a competitive standpoint. He's coming in a plus 125. For broad strokes, that's about as close to even money as you're going to see in a fight of this magnitude. But I do think those are very good odds. I wanted to bring them to your attention in case you also find that to be a surprise. Guys, get in on the UFC 295 action with DraftKings Sportsbook, the official sports betting partner of UFC. Download the app right now. Use the promo code CHAIL. New customers, you can get $200 instantly in bonus bets when you bet just $5. That's code CHAIL only at DraftKings Sportsbook. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit 1-800-GAMBLER.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE. NY or text Hope NY to number 467 369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888 789 7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort, Kansas, 21 and over, age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario, bonus bets expire. 168 hours after issuance. See sportsbook.draftkings.com slash MMA for terms and eligibility and deposit restrictions. Terms for responsible gaming resources. Let's talk Adesanya. Adesanya has been one of the most reliable box office draws the sport has had in the last half a decade. All of his numbers did exceptionally well. Every fight that he had, he had a way of making interesting, which is the hardest thing to do. For a fighter to be a good fighter, like, boy, that's difficult. For a fighter to be in shape, for a fighter to get an opportunity, for a fighter to be signed, for fighters to have people around them that don't take all of their money and that they can actually trust, like, all of these things are rare, but nothing is more difficult than making the audience find you interesting. And Adesanya's recipe was different. It worked one time, so it was rinse and repeat after that. We have never seen a guy where we know what he's going to do next, right? We know when he's the champion at the top of the belt and he wins. We know his next fight will be a main event for the belt that he's bringing. But we've never had a guy make sure we knew who his opponent would be in as fast a fashion over and over as Adesanya. Adesanya would not leave the cage until he had his next opponent lined up. And nobody's ever done it like that. They didn't have the sense. They didn't know what to say. Put him in an awkward position. They're the champion, puts him in a bit of a leadership position. They don't want to upset anybody. Champion doesn't always call people out. Like There's just a number of reasons why they wouldn't do it. But Izzy knew as a champion, my job is to sell. Skills don't sell stories sell. And Izzy would go into the current fight. I can use Robert Whitaker as an example. That was the night that Izzy unified the belt, or as he put it, defended the interim belt, <laughs> which is just great. Simple stuff, but it's just great, right? This guy was just a master. He went into the Whitaker fight with a lot of anger. He had a lot of energy, a lot of emotion. And as soon as it ends, there's generally a lull. And then you got to find a way to get back 
to that same point. But Izzy transferred that energy and he transferred that emotion. The moment he was done with Whitaker, he transferred those feelings into Paulo Costa, who was sitting in the front row, wearing what Izzy referred to as a something Martin t-shirt. Polly Martin? Who's that Martin? Ricky Martin. And that's how he began to do it, off of the Ricky Martin shirt. Such a small thing. But he did it. And when that business got handled, Izzy went right into letting the audience know who was going to be next. And when that got done, Joe Rogan came in the ring and tried to tiptoe around the idea of Izzy meeting up with his old nemesis, Piera. And Izzy literally caught Joe off and said, stop playing games. There's not a debate on who's next. It's Alex Piera. But other guys just didn't do this. Other guys didn't control their careers as well. Other guys didn't understand that what they say in that moment, right before we fade to black and go, uh, go to the credits, right before that, you have a captivated, focused market. There, there is no time that you can directly speak to your buying consumer more. You can't do it on Instagram. You can't do it on Twitter. can't do it by going on Jim Rome or popping over to Dan Lebatar. Just for example, you can't do it. Th- right there, that's the time. That's the moment. That's when you've got him. And he would capitalize on it every single time. So why that's so relevant is... I feel our industry has been very quiet towards Adesanya lately. I think that's rude. That's the guy for five years that you would turn to to make sure that you had interest, to make sure that you had clicks, to make sure that the audience would come back for more. And perhaps those sites that I reference have reached out to Izzy and he declined comment. Perhaps. But... I feel that you still owe it to a guy who carried you and transformed the way callouts are done, showed the world that you can have an impactful meaning in your own career. You can steer your own career if you do it right, do it like me, watch this, then copy me. Feel a guy like that is owed a little bit more. I feel like that guy is still owed headlines. I feel like that guy is still owed a discussion. Now, one thing we know about Adesanya is Adesanya, though coming from a very different approach, his word, if you trace it back, is as good as Khabib's. Now, Adesanya came to it from an anger and an emotion, and I'm going to get my way or bust because I'm upset with this guy. Khabib came from a religious honor, your words matter background. It was very different, but everything Khabib told us you could take to the bank. Everything Adesanya tells you you can take to the bank. So let's go off of what Adesanya has told us. He first told us that he will not be pursuing a rematch with Sean Strickland. He thought Sean did a very good job. He thought Sean had a very good strategy, not to mention the courage of coming out to Australia, dealing with the media, dealing with the booze, fighting him and finding a way to win. It was a sportsmanship. It was very unin-line with what Izzy would predictability would predictably do. It was very unaligned, but he had his reasons, and they were very honorable reasons. And he went out of his way to congratulate Sean Strickland, but he went even further to say, I'm not going to pursue that rematch. The next thing that I do is going to be fun. 
It's not going to have purpose. It's not going to have meaning. It's going to be fun. Okay, great. We don't know what that means, but we do know we're getting this from a guy who we can always take at his word. Great. Now, like anything, you have the right to change your mind. It doesn't mean that you lied previously. You changed your mind. And when Izzy changed his mind, he came out with a statement that he will not fight again until 2027. Now, Alex Pierre quickly refuted that, said, I don't believe it. I also don't believe it. I feel as though he put out one statement, which what's going to be next is for fun. And then realized, hey, a cage fight with a trained killer isn't fun. So I can't satisfy that one. And so now he's putting 2027 as a way of saying, stop asking me. I feel what we saw there was an annoyed champion. An answer of 2027, that is an annoyed champion. I think. My interpretation. But I think I'm right. So how did we get here? I mean, how did we get here? We then got some very surprising news that Adesanya had partied what we deemed to be a little bit close to the fight with Strickland. I don't know if that incident has anything to do with this, but if we are looking at a timeline of information that we can get, even if we just did a Google search, that's going to pop up. So is there something there that Izzy's just focusing on himself right now? Is he trying to get a handle on that? Eh, eh, that'd be a struggle for me. I don't know. I don't know that I believe it, but I can't dismiss it. Then we see Izzy on TV. He's out supporting Francis Ngannou. And when we see Izzy on TV, he looked great. I mean, fighters that aren't in the room, fighters that aren't training, fighters that aren't, aren't doing relatively close to what they have been doing, do not burn as many calories and they gain weight. It's as simple as that. It's calories in versus calories out. But Izzy and the frame and the leanness and the... Look to me like he's still training. Look to me like he's training just as much. But that gym specifically, Coach Eugene Berryman has a team. And anywhere else you go in MMA, in large part, broad stroke, that is a word. We've only seen two teams in MMA. The scrap pack was together from day one. They are together now. And city kickboxing. But but they really are together. I mean, they do everything together. They go to press conferences. They're there together. So Izzy might not be planning to compete, but if his teammates are, I suspect he's in the room. I suspect he's there cheering him on. It's exactly what he was doing in Saudi Arabia and doing it at Francis's Corner. Showing that support, giving that confidence, letting the predator know the world doesn't believe on you, but of the small people that do, I'm one of them. And my opinion matters. You can beat this guy. It was a cool thing. He looked great. I believe that he's training. He says I'm not fighting until 2027, which means he's tired. He's tired of it all. Just for now, it will come back. But that fame is a drug and most guys pursue it. They can't do anything. They will start saying things about themselves. They will start trolling. They will start saying bad things about themselves if it gets a reaction, including a negative reaction. They just need a reaction. So goddamn bad. Adesanya is different. So I'm not fighting until 2027, which is not an announcement of when his next fight will be. It means don't bother asking me about fighting unless you'd like to speak about one of my teammates. It's a very interesting thing. He's a very honorable guy. 
He's a very interesting guy. The one thing about him is we can take him at his word. His current word is 2027. I'm just allowing you, and I'm speaking for him now. I haven't been authorized to do that, but I am speaking for him. 2027 is not a hard and fast decision that he made. But for right now, give him a break. He's recharging. Physically, mentally, he's recharging. He's stepping back. That's all that that meant. You're not going to have to wait until 2027 to see the champ fight. Guys, let's talk a little UFC 300, right? It's all speculation, but Daniel Cormier comes out and says, I mean, he didn't say it like he was guessing. He said it like he was announcing that Chandler, uh, Michael Chandler is going to take on Conor McGregor, main event UFC 300. Now, I'm assuming just from knowing Daniel that he was making a guess, and that's a really good guess. I'm, I'm not light on that guess. I would like to break it down, though, because I think you might find it interesting. You might even learn something about the business. To do an event like 300... Okay, which only has two pieces of precedence prior to it, 100 and 200. You were talking not only title fights, you were talking massive amounts of title fights. But I go back to, to, I mean, between those two shows, what we do, about six belts were up for grabs? I know one of them fell apart there, but I think you understand my message. If you were to go back just to 100, you had three, and you had the sports biggest stars. George St. Pierre had to jerk the curtain for anybody. It really wouldn't matter who. George St. Pierre, the biggest star in the top draw in the entire industry and the biggest star in the top draw the industry had ever had wasn't the main event. That's how loaded 100 was. So when you go along those veins and you skip over and you go to three, you're now talking about a non-title main event. I just think that you guys might find that interesting. Now, we always follow the rules in this sport that we make up as we go, but it is stated that if you have multiple titles on a card, the main event is whoever is the biggest. That is a policy that has officially been stated. So I do believe that you're going to have a title fight. The problem with having a title fight is we can't then adhere to that policy. Now, if we're throwing it out and we're not adhering to this policy, we can all just hit delete, get up and leave the room now and not even finish Uncle Chael talking to you. So let's go in the vein that we are going to stick with a policy. That means you don't have any title fights at all. Right? It wouldn't just mean that you're not main event in one. You're not having any at all. There is not a scenario where Conor McGregor, even on a card like 300, isn't the main event. And just the way the finances of it work and are laid out, there is a possible way to not make him the main event. As unlikely as you might think that is, there is a possible way. Brock Lesnar was the biggest draw at UFC 200. Without question. Fight that's still getting talked about because Mark Hunt's still suing over it. He wasn't the main event. He wasn't even the main attraction. I apologize. He was the main attraction, but he wasn't the main event. As I remember, he wasn't even the co-main. I believe Anderson versus Daniel was. Brock was third from the top. So how do you do that? You have George St. Pierre, who's paid more than anybody, and he wasn't the main event going back to 100. So how do you do that? And when you're talking about a car this big and you're willing to invest this much, you're going to do some things that you don't do on other nights. 
which I've just laid out for you. Having Brock Lesnar third from the top, having Anderson Silva fight a world champion, but it's not for the world championship because they won't go five rounds. Like, I mean, there's things that happen. We can get it done, but it would be a massive message to the industry. Look, we got guys coming after Connor. They're coming. But the dates simply don't match up. Chemayev is coming for him. He's not there, but he's coming. I don't mean he's going to get in the ring and beat him. I'm talking about for the top billing and the top draw. Chemayev has a massive something behind him that has, has been fumbled unlike any piece of marketing that we've ever seen in this sport. But either way, he's coming for him. He's not there. He's coming for him. Adesanya was coming for him. Adesanya was one of the few that understood the game. See, the reason that Chemayev and Adesanya are in the discussion of coming for Connor is because they know that that is a title. They know that that's a spot. And they know that they can take it. Of the 767 guys under contract, there's three that know that that's a thing. There's three that know that there's a clear strategy that has to be invoked and it has to work to get to the spot. Everybody else is just trying to win fights. God bless those guys. We need them. We need them. But I love to use the example because whether you're talking about Adesanya or you're talking about McGregor, they have one thing in common. Neither of them won their last fight. When you're talking about Conor, the hottest star in all of the sport, everybody else is trying to win fights. Conor McGregor is going to come in. He's going to headline over all of you. They're going to have to break the policy, break the deck, and break the bank just to get that done. He did not win his last fight. He has no championship. In fact, he didn't win the fight before that, the fight before that, or the one before that. I think I could say that one more time. I believe he's one in five. I believe. But I'm trying to prove a point for you. He also is playing a different game. And when you have guys like Sean O'Malley, who's coming for him, Sean O'Malley's fighting the month before, so he won't be on the card. Adesanya has removed himself from the sport for a little bit of a period of time, so he won't be on the card. Shemayev dances to a different drum. We have no idea, but we sure can't count on him being on the card. My point is this. If they finally do have somebody that's actually a hot stepper, that's getting out there, is doing what needs to be done, and coming for a position, which is up for grabs. They don't have a ranking by it. They don't write it down. There's not going to be a, a belt, and your coaches have never mentioned it to you, but it's still the most important spot there is, which is not that of champion. It is the top draw in the business. That spot, which is currently held by the same guy that held it last year, the year before that, and the five years before that, who is not a champion. But let's just say those guys that are coming for him are. Let's say Sean O'Malley, by example. It can't be Sean because Sean's fighting the month before. I'm attempting to prove a point here. Imagine if Sean was the leading act on UFC 300. Imagine that. And Conor McGregor was jerking the curtain. The biggest star in the sport. Well, Brock Lesnar was the big star as well. He jerked it twice. Twice in the same night. George St. Pierre was the biggest star before. They didn't put him as the main event. So I'm just trying to share this point with you, that it would be a massive deal if Conor and Chandler fight on 300 if they are the main event, it means we changed a policy. That's a really big deal. But if they're not the main event, it will be the first sign of the passing of a torch. The absolute first very clear sign that has ever been put forth is if somebody gets on the docket with Conor McGregor, that has always been the win, which looks like it's going to Michael Chandler. What a win. Red penny night. It's real. Unless... Right, That would be a very coveted spot to be opposite Conor McGregor. That would be the number one thing you can do right now. I fully understand it. Unless you can headline over McGregor. And that is a game, and that is a position that of the 767 
interchangeable mediocrities under contract, only three understand is worth fighting for. And if those three keep fighting, and guys, I'm not convinced it's not exactly what Adesanya is doing, by the way. Adesanya is playing this game much like O'Malley, much like McGregor on a very different level. Adesanya is well aware. No principle gets in front of supply and demand. And you can't come back until you leave first. And he's well aware of how hot, how red hot he will be by April of 2024. Should he get a story going and come back, particularly if his mortal enemy, Drikas Duplissi, should get the belt in January, which does give him enough time. So the hottest storyline that our sport has seen, so hot that people couldn't talk about it because it made them uncomfortable, it was melting the airwaves hot. Duplisi versus Izzy as at least viable in somebody's mind. I think that somebody is Izzy. And I don't think you're going to get the fight. I don't think that he's that interested unless you gave him something that none of you ever think about because you're like the other 767 interchangeable mediocrities. And I don't mean to insult you, but you don't. You don't think on this level, which is why you can't achieve on that level. He didn't give a damn time about is he didn't give a damn about the belt. He's already had it. He didn't care about Duplices. He already ran from him. But if you sweeten the pot and told him he'll be the first person to headline over McGregor, a game that he's been playing and a title that he wants to win, all of a sudden, you're going to get the return of Izzy. He's going to take that spot. He's going to headline 300. Guys, the number one question I get asked all the time, what's the most important habit you can build on to be successful? You know what my answer is? Sleep. I am no sleep expert, but I can tell you that for myself, I perform at my optimum level mentally and physically when I'm getting regular deep sleep. And honestly, that hasn't always been easy. This is where Momentous Sleep Pack comes in. Momentous experts created a natural ingredient combination that will help you fall asleep faster, stay asleep longer, and wake up refreshed. The ingredients are so clean that they're used by the best Olympians, pro athletes, and college teams. Momentous Sleep Pack has every certification under the sun, including being NSF certified. I usually take a pack 30 minutes before bed and boom, I wake up feeling like a million bucks. If you're having trouble sleeping and it's affecting your daily performance, I highly recommend Momentous Sleep Pack. Designed by the world's best experts, used by the world's best teams and athletes, and made for all of us, guys. Go to livemomentous.com. Use the promo code CHAIL. That's going to get you 20% off your first order. That's livemomentous.com and use the promo code CHAIL. Well, well, well. Where should I begin? I mean... This, this event at Madison Square Garden, and I'm, I'm trying to show you guys, right? I'm not trying to be a scumbag and go, look at me, I'm out here. But guys, I, the garden's right over here. There's a pop, there's a buzz going on out here. And I share that with you because this, does it kind of feel down, right? Card subject to change. One thing about Dana White, when he makes those changes, and we saw this as recently as three weeks ago, so you guys will know that it's true. Kamar Usman was a treat. It upped the card, right? Volkanovsky was 100% the most meaningful opponent for Islam, and we got it. It was a treat. 
but I can follow Dana back. We can go back. You want to know a great night that turned business? It was Jose Aldo versus Conor McGregor. It was set and projected to not only be an overall top 10 event, but it would easily shatter all records at that weight class. This is before Conor was even the champion. Jose comes off, and that's the fight, right? It's that, That's the fight. It's a it's the king versus the jester. I mean, that's the fight. Jose comes off. Chad Mendes goes in. It ends up beating projections, but we can feel that too. As bad as we wanted to see Jose, and Jose was the right guy for something that we weren't expecting to be so meaningful, not to mention a very different stylistic match with Chad Mendes. I'm just offering you examples that one thing about when Dana has to pull out that magic wand and show why he's different than everybody else is when he needs to change a card, the card will generally get better. And if we're being fair, losing Jones and Stipe was a blow. I just want to share with you, this event is so pivotal. You you do not have storylines set up for 205 pounds or for heavyweight in 2024 if you don't have this event. It's, it's one of those situations. Now, I could feel that, and that's a nice thing to say, right? That's a nice thing. We're fight fans. You know, let's, let, let's defend the sport that we love. When I got out here in New York, I can just tell you everything is just as hot and just as bopping. I mean, we, we've got this fighter hotel. That's a fighter hotel. But all of ESPN staying here, all the crew, everybody's staying here at the same hotel. There's lines out the door. It is difficult to get through the lobby where you've got fans that are just passionate, man. They're, they're wearing shirts. They got, they got on their clothes. Some of them are still got the fight kit. Some of them are just in monster t-shirts and hats. I mean, monster is a, is a sponsor is doing an activation out here. The number one thing that I'm trying to share with you guys is the buzz and the feel on the ground is just as hot as anything else that I've had the privilege of seeing mixed martial arts related here in New York city scheduled for the garden. So number one thing I'm trying to share with you now, I also am a little bit confused. I am a storyteller, right? I come, I come to you guys and I tell you stories. I don't break news. There's only a couple of ways to be able to talk to you guys, right? And one of them is to come in and share with you some of the, the background information, some of why the fight matters. I very rarely bring you guys an X's and O breakdown. I feel like you can get that from any job or out there. And there's so many people that want to break into MMA and that's how they're going to do it. Go right ahead. You'll never compete with me. Because I'm not in that field. I'm just sharing with you. That I don't believe that the audience cares if this guy's Southpaw or this guy's Orthodox. That was a story once upon a time when people didn't know anything about fighting. It was a really big deal to be able to talk about. If you're a Southpaw, you're going to throw the left hand where you're circling right so that you watch his check hook, right? It's one of these things where that is really helpful for the one or two big fights that we get a year. But nowadays, where you get two a week to choose from, I just, I find it boring. And... As a storyteller, I am going to have a very hard time. I'm going to have a very hard time because I don't understand. I don't understand. And you you guys must understand what number one contender is. There is a number of terms in this sport that are misunderstood and misused. But number one contender is one of those. If you go to a rankings page, you're going to have to go to the official ranking page just so we don't have any argument or discussion. Whether we like it or not, we will have to follow whatever that says. But if you go to that page and you see a guy that is ranked number one, you will often have, including talking heads, including reporters and pundits in this space, that where they will call that person the number one contender. That is not true. The number one contender is whoever is next 
for the champion. So you could have a guy who in theory is the number one contender, but whoever has the bout sheet, that is the one and only way where you actually establish number one contender. And I'm bringing that to you. It's extremely relevant. Like one thing about this sport that we all know very well is we're going to follow whatever rules we make up on the spot. Like we do understand that. But when you don't have rules that are stated at anything in life, you will then turn to precedence. If there is no policy that is officially stated by decision makers, you will then turn to precedence. And one thing that we do know about the interim belt, and I love the interim belt. I wish they'd bring back the super fight belt. I I hope they contest for the first time ever the BMF belt. I like those kinds of opportunities. That's I'm a little bit different, but I do like those. And one thing that we all could at least understand without ever having it stated for us, whoever is the interim champion is the number one contender, meaning his next fight will be if everybody's healthy, able, and willing against the undisputed champion. If you have the interim belt and you're able and willing, when the undisputed champion returns, it will be the two of you, period. No politics. We're done. We do all understand it to a degree, but that is not what's going to happen here. Stipe Miocic is the number one contender. Stipe Miocic has the bout sheet. I'm well aware they're going to need a new or an amended bout sheet to, to change the date and the location. I'm, I'm well aware of that, but I just want you to follow me on that point because this is a riddle that even for me, I got a hard time solving. Okay. We're going to go out and we're going to have an interim championship match. It's going to be between two active, busy, hungry, well-ranked, incredible record studs. Period. Are they the absolute best? I mean, it's, it's one of those questions. That's why you got to go and hold those matches. You could talk about the greatest ever, and you could talk about the greatest talent. You could do all of those things. You could come to the c- conclusion of John Jones. But there's a reason we go out and have the fight. We don't actually know right now is the greatest ever the greatest today. It's one of those situations. So we're going to go out. We're going to have this interim championship match that feels to me like it should be the world championship match. And even though we're arguing over semantics, the semantics in this particular case are very different because we're going to have an interim champion who will not be the number one contender. As a matter of fact, that interim champion, if he's healthy, able, and willing, will be in the front row when the champion, John Jones, fights the number one contender, which is Stipe Miocic, which is a year from now. Stipe and John Jones have stated numerous times that they are going to retire after that match, both of them. So if the information that we're given turns out to be accurate, the interim champion who will be in the front row at the match thinking he's going to take on the winner of John Estipe, the moment the winner of John Estipe, as moment the words leave his mouth into the microphone into the audience's ears, I'm retired, he is no longer champion, and the interim champion is. So the interim champion, I want you to stay with me here, guys. I told you it's a riddle. I told you it's a hard one. Let's get to the meat of this thing. The interim champion, for sure and without question, based on the information we're currently given, right? I, I know I know we got to operate within that, but it's all we have. We're only as good as the information we're given. The interim champion, without fighting and without throwing a punch, without weighing in, without signing a contract, will for sure and without question be the undisputed champion. That is, that is literally the story that we have right now. The interim champion 
will become the undisputed champion because he will never have a shot at the undisputed champion and the undisputed champion with or without success in his next contest is going to retire and so is his opponent who may or may not at that time be the undisputed champion which makes the interim champion king all of those things can't be real at the same time it doesn't work it doesn't work some of those terms are what we call mutually exclusive so the undisputed champion is going to become Apologize, if the interim champion is going to become the undisputed champion, for sure, no way around it, for sure, just a matter of when, it seems like this should be for, and it seems like this is for, the undisputed championship. breakdown here i want to make an official pick for tom and sergey now you know my biasness right i do my best to see through that i really do but at times that i have a biasness at a minimum to keep my integrity and honor with you guys i come out up front and i tell you hey listen eh, my my vision's a little clouded here i got these rosy glasses on they're rosy for tom aspinall by the way, Michael Bisping's kind of stepping, I, a little bit stepping on me here. I, I mean, I feel, I feel like he knows that I'm taking a girl to a prom, and he, he came in, and he, he tried to take her. I was here first. Like, I had Tom first. I'm, I, I don't really understand that, other than this countryman business. But I, I must tell you, Michael Bisping is a very big part of Tom's story. At least it is for me, because I know Michael Bisping. I am friends with Michael Bisping. Michael Bisping has never complimented me once. I'm his friend. He has never paid me a compliment, not even close. Do you hear the things he's saying about Aspinall? Michael Bisping is a proud father. And he has bragged about them kids. That's true. He doesn't bring about them kids as much as he does about Tom Aspinall. I said, what is going on here? I even called up Cormier. I said, well, what is going on here? You see Michael more, more than I. What is going on here? Are they from the same gym? Is that what it is? Is, is it Michael's old coach is now Tom's coach, and so Michael's building up? Did Michael invest in the management company? Like what, what is going on here? And Daniel said, JLP, I wonder the same thing. I actually just asked Michael Bisping that. None of those things are true. He and Tom actually aren't even all that close. Bisping just knows what he's looking at. He's seeing him. Yeah, he got a little excited because it's a fellow Brit. Michael is the, currently the only British champion. Okay, hold on. From middleweight and up. And I bring that to you because sure there's a pride and sure there's an honor. And Michael had that for below 185, which of course is Leon. He had that, but not to this extent, not even close. So I want to know what he's looking at. I'm big on Tom because I discovered him. I'm taking him to the dance, even though Bisping's showing up outside with the limo hanging his head. Saying, hey, don't forget about me. Yeah, well, we did forget about you, Mike. Hey, you're a little late, but I'm going to tell you this. Tom is the favorite. And that is stunning. That is stunning. I'm with Tom. Tom is one and one in his last two. I can't get around that. To find those two that I'm referencing where he's batting a perfect 500, you got to go back almost two years. 17 months, 19 months. You're going back two years. And you're juxtaposing that with a mysterious young Russian who has only lost one fight. Pavlich is like 29-1, and one, guys. It's crazy how many fights this young guy has had. But you can have fights like that when you're only out there for three minutes. 
The one that he lost was to the great, good friend of mine, Alistair Overeem. And if we're being fair to that fight, he whipped Overeem's ass. It wasn't ultra competitive. Overeem is just a cagey veteran. He's got a lot of power. He doesn't give up. So you got to fight him for all 15 minutes. Sergey thought he'd go out there and get away with fighting him for 11 minutes. Doesn't work. But but it's very relevant. I mean, I must bring that to you. When you when you look at a guy, if I told you he was 30 and 0, that is going to sound, you're going to hear we're having a very different interpretation than 29 and 1. Just is. That's just a reality, right? But the skills of Sergey don't change. He's not any better if he beat Overeem. He's not any better if he was 29 and 1 like he is, or if he was 30 and 0 and beat Overeem. His skills don't change. And I bring this to you because you have Thomas one and one in his last two, and you got to go back two years to find it. Sergey Pavlich in that same two-year period, six up, six down, knocked them all out, knocked them all out in the very first round. But Tom is the favorite, and he always has been. And I'll just share with you, that's a surprise to me. I'm going off of DraftKings odds, but they never buckled. They got real close. They're close now. They're what I refer to as even money. Negative 145 to plus 125. The way I speak, and if you that's even money. But when you're making a piece to your audience, you've got to establish somebody that's a favorite unless it is, in fact, gridlock, negative 110 plus one time. It's one of those situations. Tom's a favorite. You guys see something. I, again, I spoke to Daniel Cormier about this. I said, hey, why do you suppose that is? Daniel said, well, Tom's bigger. And I almost disputed that. I mean, at heavyweight, it's real hard. How do you know who's big? I mean, a lot of times, right? How do you know? Like, this guy weighed at 264. This guy weighed at 265. But they both cut down to do it. One guy had breakfast before he got there. and knew he could knew he could beat the scale. The other guy barely had a good meal in the last month. I mean, it's, it's one of those situations, right? That it's not all created the same. And Tom is a little bit taller. But when I look at them in a photo, I thought Sergi was bigger. If I was just a guess, I got a good eye for this. I mean, I, I could work at the carnival. You guys walk up to me and say, Chill, what do you think I weigh? I'll get you within three pounds. You could be fully clothed. You could be male or female. I'll get you within three pounds. When I look at those two, I think Sergi's bigger. But one of the reasons, and again, this is going back to Daniel, but Daniel said, Chael, your eyes are playing tricks on you because you don't understand how tall Tom is. 6'5 is a very tall man, and that weight gets distributed different versus Sergi, who's just a little bit over 6'2". Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, there is a scale. One of them weighs something, and the other way weighs it. But apparently Tom is bigger. And I'm just asking, why do you guys think that matters? When I went to Daniel Cormier, an expert in the space, and by the way, by the way, we're sitting at DraftKings. We're sitting in the DraftKings headquarters in New York while we're having this conversation. I mean, we're surrounded by betters and handicappers. We're surrounded by odds makers. And nobody spoke up. They just listened to what Daniel said and kind of shrugged and, and gave me the sense that Daniel's got it right, that, hey, you got two young guys. They're both dangerous. They're both big. Sergi sure has been on a great run, but Tom knows it, right? What one advantage that those other six men didn't have. Number five had a little more than number four. Number four had a little more than number three. And number three had a little more than number two. But you see the problem here is you didn't really know about his power. You have this Russian guy. You assume he's real heavy into grappling. That isn't actually accurate with Sergi. He did wrestle, but it was it was very limited. It was half-man wrestling, Greco-Roman it's called. And it was, it was up until he was 17. He wasn't like a medalist or a world team member. He just happened to do it. So when you get a guy like that, you don't know a lot about him. He comes up, boom, 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 and he's putting those hands on you, right? The, the number one thing that makes a guy's hands look good is if he can offer the threat of a takedown. A takedown is very helpful. Of course, we know it is. You want to know what's more helpful? The threat of a takedown. If a guy is worried the whole time, you're going to take him down. Boom, boom. It's, it's a different situation, and it's much better. So 
we'll see where all of this goes. I'm rolling with Tom. I disclosed up front that I was going to be with Tom. That was my date, even though Bisping's trying to steal him. But I do think Sergi is something special. And I think that Sergi also had the benefit of knowing about this fight. There is a number of people that have said, John Jones is too scared. He'll never fight Sergi. Now, I don't know where that came from. And it flat out wasn't fair considering Sergi was the backup and John Jones would have fought him. He knew who the backup was. He already agreed that he would fight him. But somehow this narrative still lived. John Jones will never fight Sergi Pavlich. He already agreed to fight him. So let's, let's just move that aside a little bit. Tom was very open to say, I'm not ready for John Jones. I do not want John Jones. I need three more fights before I have John Jones. I mean, he was very open to say this. And again, if you're taking a guy at his word, the audience is going to form an opinion. And the audience formed an opinion that Sergi is so good, so scary, so young, so youthful, represents the next generation that John Jones himself is too scared to do it. But Tom, who said, I'm too scared to do it, it wouldn't go well is the favorite over search. I just think it's interesting. I mean, I just got to break it down to you from that perspective. If you want to get into the X's and O's, you only got to look at one thing. Can Tom get to round two? You know, if you were to put, uh, put uh, Daniel Cormier in there, the answer is going to be yes. I don't know how the fight's going to go, and I'm talking about against Serge. I'm talking about a heavy hitter. It could be Francis Ngannou, a heavy hitter. Can Daniel get to round two? Because by the numbers, round two really starts to bring the odds into your favor. Can this guy get there? Yeah, of course he can. He can come out, he can get an underhook. He's stepped into some control called the danger zone, which Daniel's one of the few guys that will know about because he's a wrestler. I'm just sharing with you. Yeah, he can push him into the fence. He can listen to the crowd boo. Stomp the feet. Knee the thigh. Pull on his arms. Wear him down. Get him going. So the whole reason you're trying to get him to round two is to wear him down a little bit. Tom doesn't have that skill, at least not inherently. But people aren't counting on Tom needing to have that skill, which means a lot of you really believe in Tom. And yeah, Tom's done his part. He's won some fights, but he's won and won his last two. But you really believe in Tom. And yeah, you got Michael Bisping out there saying nice things, but he's a Johnny come lately. Daddy was here first, which means you believe in Tom, which means you believe in me. Official predictions, Piera versus, as you know what I was about to say, I was about to say Blahovitz. But Piera versus Prohaska, but I'm glad that I'm thinking Blahovitz. Blahovitz is extremely meaningful. First off, he's never really gotten his due from any of you. He never got his due from me. He really didn't. Now, he did get recognized as the world champion. He also went on and very quietly had one of the, the largest upsets in terms of uh, actually upsetting people, which is when he beat Adesanya. The whole reason he was even there so Adesanya could take his belt and build a potential super fight against John Jones, right? I mean, I mean Blahovitz was, was an afterthought. He goes out and wins, and I feel like it's still never been celebrated. I think that guy's owed a little something. Can we all agree at a minimum that Blahovitz is awesome? Can we all agree on that? Total stud. Can we all agree on that? Okay, because Alex Pierre is my pick, and Alex Pierre has only been at 205 pounds one time, but it happened to be against Blahovich, and I think that's very meaningful. There is not a scenario aside from the one that we're about to face on Saturday where I would pick Alex Pierre to beat Yuri Prohaska at this stage in their career. Yuri Prohaska is a great. He is an international great. He did some of his finest work. In Ryzen, just for example, 
in Japan before he ever got his opportunity here in the Ultimate Fighting Championship. Piera is an amateur. Piera is an amateur. I don't know of very many world champions. They exist. I don't know very many world champions that have never had a wrestling match. They exist, but there ain't very many. I don't know of very many world champions in MMA that don't have a black belt in jiu-jitsu. As a matter of fact, this guy doesn't have any belt in jiu-jitsu that I'm aware of. And I would be aware if he had a brown or higher because I'm a professor in the art and why we get the list and he ain't on it. He's had eight wins and two losses. He's had 10 fights. He's an amateur. He is an amateur. I'm, I'm, I'm pausing and waiting for you guys to disagree, at least within your own mind. Have I got you there? Have you disagreed? Okay. That amateur was the champion of the world within this calendar year at 185 pounds. If that amateur wins on Saturday and becomes the champion of the world at 205 pounds, so he will be the champion of the world in the same calendar year at two different weight classes, not to mention two very distinctive weight classes, not to mention the weight class that he left of 185 pounds has a champion in it who did not make it out of the first minute with him. Alex Pierre should be fighter of the year. He should be recognized. The World MMA Awards needs to recast ballots and give the audience a second opportunity to weigh their options, and they need to mark the ballot for Alex Piera. That's an amateur, an amateur with no wrestling matches and no brown belt or higher in jiu-jitsu. I don't know that he has any belt in jiu-jitsu. I guess everybody gets a white belt, right? If you ever do jiu-jitsu, you get a white belt. You understand my point? And the one win that he has that made him a number one contender in this weight class is over the guy that we all just conceded a moment ago. Jan Blahovitz doesn't get enough credit. He's good. He's really good. Now you're juxtaposing that against Yuri Prohaska, who's anything but an amateur. This guy is a pro. This guy is a veteran. I mean, this guy is on a comeback. And comebacks are a big deal, right? You can't come back if you didn't retire first. And I've never been satisfied with what happened with Prohaska. And it seems like, hey, Chael, elect yourself mayor of Get the Hintville and understand you're never going to know it's none of your business. I, I get that, but you guys know where I would be a curious guy. You guys are curious. We like to know things. I can't find out on Yuri. I went as far as to not make an accusation. I would never accuse him. But as far as to bring this forward and say, if it's not true, I need to hear from you, Yuri. And that can be your manager, your coach. That can be you. And if you don't know how to get a hold of me or you, what, you get some weird deal against Uncle Chip, go to somebody else. They'll get me the message. But the Yuri story is a very hard one to follow. Okay. On December 2nd of last year, while preparing for a title defense scheduled to be on December 10th, eight days prior to the match, Yuri Prohaska hurts his shoulder. And we are told that the injury is the worst towards shoulders. The worst, for, so four shoulder injuries, this is the worst shoulder injury we have ever seen. That's a quote. I would, get, I would do better for you if I could. I don't know who we is. I do not know who was making that statement. I don't know who we is. Dana White made the statement. I don't know who he was referencing. And I would never attempt to embarrass that person. What I'm sharing with you is it appears that there was a misdiagnosis. That's great. That's great news. If there wasn't a misdiagnosis, then there's a miracle. And we need to know how it happened. That would be a modern day miracle, truly, of medicine. But either way, either way, an injury eight days prior to bell time, they took the belt off of him. And this is a semantical thing. 
that many of you want to be able to say that he relinquished the belt. I, I don't want to fight you on that. You're wrong. And many of you will even send me clips where Prohaska says, I relinquished the belt. I've seen those clips. It's not a fight that I want to have. I don't care. But when I tell stories, I tell them accurately. They took the belt from him. Do you understand? They took the belt from him for an injury that was eight days before a fight that the world really didn't want to see. They did everything they could do to not book Glover Teixeira versus Yuri Prohaska. It's very interesting because simultaneously you had a heavyweight champion who had an MCL issue and sat for 10 months and the discussion of taking the belt from him never even took place. So it's an interest. I'm just, all I'm trying to share, no conspiracy. I'm just trying to share. This is interesting. There's not a conspiracy. That happened. Everything that I just said happened. And it happened in the order that I said it. But by January, Yuri Prohaska was taking to the internet and saying, I'm coming back. I'm ready to go. Let's fight. Nobody responded to that. Not one single athlete responded to that. I said, great, I'll be first. Nobody within the promotion responded to that. Whoever it was that said that's the worst shoulder I've ever seen, I would think that that person would really want to know what happened here because either there was a misdiagnosis, which is great. That's great news. I'm not picking on somebody. Or there was a miracle. It's one of the two. There's not a third option. There's not a fourth option. You have two doors to go in. Which one was it? By February and by March, we now are seeing video of Prohaska in training. So when he says, I'm willing and able and ready, we now know that he's not kidding. But nobody at the promotion backed that story. And no fellow fighter challenged him. So somebody with some inside information somewhere knew he's not ready and he's not available. Now, in the sunset of the tale that I just told, comes out an announcement through USADA that they tested him a record 22 times in 27 days. That in the history of their organization, they had never tested somebody 22 times in 27 days. I'll tell you right now, Prohaska's clean. You can do an Asada test until you're blue in the face, or you could have me do an eye test. He's going to have to take his shirt off, but if he takes his shirt off and I assess him, I will be correct 100% of the time. Never wrong. Not only can I tell you if he's using, I can tell you what he's using. And I can tell you Prohaska's clean. But I can also tell you they do not show up 22 times in 27 days unless they believe, they being Asada in this case, that he's dirty. And the story never added up from Jump Street. To have the worst injury, to have any kind of an injury, and the guy is not given more than a week. I'm just sharing, that never happens. But he wasn't removed from the USADA testing pool. It's a very important part of the story. Like if you're looking for some kind of, hey, wait a minute, this doesn't pass the smell test. That's relevant. If a guy is so, it's the worst injury you've ever seen. So, but but let's let's focus on that. Okay, have you seen? Let me ask the, the author of this statement. Have you ever seen a shoulder injury that ended a guy's career? Oh yeah, hell yeah, I have lots of them. Okay, you have, and this is worse than those. Oh yeah, this is the worst I've ever seen. Okay, then in your mind, his career is over, which is one of the reasons that you took the belt back so fast. There was no reason to wait. There's no reason to wait if he's never going to return, but he stayed in the pool. I think that's a really interesting detail. I know Conor McGregor took a lot of flack for it. I know TJ Dillashaw, whether TJ plans to return or not, but he took a lot of flack for it. I know Darren Till, who did leave the pool so he could take substances, and I only know that because he opened his mouth. He should have kept his mouth shut, but I know they took flack for it, right? 
And Prohaska didn't do that. He didn't leave the pool to heal that shoulder. He was tested anytime you want to come. They came 22 times in 27 days. He was there every single time, and he continued to be there. And yet he still healed a shoulder. That was the worst that we've ever seen, and other ones that we've seen have ended people's careers. And we thought that was going to be yours, which is why we took the belt back and had no grace period and no sympathy, and it was a cold heart and a mean thing to do, but we had the information known as the MRI of your shoulder. We were given the advice. This was the worst that it had ever been. So it's a very interesting detail when you're confronted with the fact that USADA has a new policy, which is if they flag an assay, if you want to admit to it, great. Everybody will know by morning. But if you choose to fight this, we will go through arbitration. There's a number of steps there. You guys have heard of a number of them. If it's a tainted supplement, right? You hear about all of this garbage. And if that happens and you come back and you prevail, and a lot of people beat USADA. USADA was far, far from bulletproof. In fact, the mere fact, four guys beat them all in one month. In one month, we had four star heroes go down that if you search them on the internet, they'll never recover from it. They never got those sponsorships back. They ne- Between the four of them, they never main evented again. It ruined them. And USADA had all four of them wrong. Big deal. And I'm bringing to you that why was Prohaska saying he was ready to fight? Why was he posting videos saying he was ready to fight? But nobody challenged him and nobody within the promotion backed that story. Why? And one possible answer is he got flagged on an assay through Asada. He fought them. He's an honest and clean guy. He fought them and he beat them. And I don't know that he should stay quiet if he did those things. And I actually heard from his manager, Tim Dillon, who happens to be a great guy, by the way. I don't, Tim, I don't know if we've ever actually met, but I feel like I know him. He happens to be a great guy. And he didn't like that I brought this up. I think that Tim might be misunderstanding my message. My message is in complete defense of Yuri. Yuri suffered an injury. Three other athletes, Darren Till, Conor McGregor, TJ Dillashaw, all took massive flack for how they were going to cure that injury. Whether it was accurate or not, they put the pieces in place to give the naysayers a platform to say they were going to use. Yuri didn't do that. Yuri got tested 22 times in 27 days. There is no room for error. USADA is not great. They're just better than other guys. They're not great. 22 times in 27 days, it'll be perfect. Trust me when I tell you that. There's ways to beat them, but if they show up 22 times in 27 days, you will not have those windows that are needed. And every single time you have somebody in that situation, we all do the same thing. You fill out your whereabouts a certain way, and you buy yourself a certain amount of time. Should you make a mistake or they find you before that uploads to the page, you don't answer the door. And it's not known as a refusal. Just say that you were somewhere else. You get three mistakes in a county, right? I'm just sharing with you. Like, there's ways to do it when you're dirty. I think this is one part that that, that, uh, Tim Tim Dillon was missing. I think that he was missing this. Yuri did not do any of those things. He could not have been cleaner. And if he did go through some kind of an arbitration that cost him his championship and protected his reputation, but it cost him from making a living for a year... I think he should take his credit for that. I should take his bow. And if that's not what happened and I've got it wrong and a miracle took place, well, by God. That's something that you should share with the audience too. So where has Yuri been and why has he been gone is extremely relevant because generally when a guy returns, he's not going to return as well as when he left. And Yuri was awesome when he left, but he had weaponized pace. It's the whole reason Usada showed up. They thought he was taking EPO. He had a pace that a human being doesn't have. 
unless he's a superhuman, which means he's on EPO, or at least this is what USADA believed. He wasn't. He's not on it. I'm sharing this with you. It's important to understand Prohaska. I am taking Alex Pierre, but I'm not willing to tell you that Pierre is a better fighter than Prohaska. I'm taking a game. I'm rolling the dice that Prohaska has been out, that there, that injury that they said was the worst ever was at least greater than Yuri, who told us one month later, which actually only equaled three weeks, that he was back and he was ready. I don't know that he was. And if he wasn't, the question is, well, how long has he been back? How long has he been back? Because that is what's going to tell us if he's ready. He's always going to say he's ready. How long has he been back? 25 minutes is a long time. 25 minutes against opponents are not, they're not all equal. 25 with this guy is not the same as 25 with that guy. And when you're dealing with Piera, who had lost 20 minutes and knew he was in the last frame, meaning round number five, and knew he needed to knock out Adesanya, it's exactly what he did. That's not a guy that you can show up partly ready for. He says, I'm ready. He says, I'm back. He said that for 11 months and three days. When exactly did he come back? Because that's going to be what determines, is he ready? All right, guys, that's it for today's episode. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you could be so kind, how about you leave me a review over on Apple Podcasts to make me even more rich and even more famous. Like one thing about my millions in the bank is it likes to have other money to keep it company. Have you considered that? Go over there and leave a review. Leave a reaction for Uncle Chael. Tell me how great I am. I'll be back on Tuesday. I'll be back from the mean streets of Westland, Oregon to recap everything from this disgusting place they call New York. Until then, I'm Chael Sonnen, and you are welcome.